Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, the pandemic disproportionately affects Black, Indigenous, and other people of color. We'll get a thorough explanation for why that is and what can be done about it. The underlying factor most responsible with health disparities is what we refer to as systemic racism. These are issues, factors that are baked in to virtually every aspect of American life. And a doctoral student who studies 19th century Britain shares some similarities she discovered with modern day America. One of the things that really um, got me was that, of course, there were, you know, anti-vax movement in 19th century Britain and the kind of um, anti-vax mask protests that we saw. They were both about, you know, the tension between the individual liberty and public health. All that, plus a visit from The Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll examine medical liberties and alternative health in 19th century Britain with a doctoral student from Syracuse University. But first, Upstate's chief diversity officer explains why the pandemic is disproportionately affecting Black, Indigenous, and other people of color. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The COVID-19 pandemic is impacting racial groups differently, disproportionately affecting Black, Indigenous, and other people of color. Today, I'm talking about this with Dr. Daryl Dykes. He's an orthopedic surgeon who serves as Chief Diversity Officer at Upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Dykes. Good morning, Amber. Always good to talk to you and uh, good to be here this morning to talk about this important subject. Let's start by looking at the numbers. Of those who test positive for COVID-19, what's the breakdown based on race or ethnicity? Sure. Well, there are a couple of things that we should uh, understand first when we're talking about numbers and statistics related to race and ethnicity um, and under, understand clearly what disparity means. Uh, right. So if you just to think about easy numbers, let's imagine we had a, a town or a village that had exactly 1000 people in it. And now let's imagine that uh, of that thousand people, 600 were white. 200 are black, 100 were Latinx, and then there are 50 each of uh, Native uh, Hawaiian, Pacific Islanders, or Native Americans. So when you look at that, 60% of that population uh, is white, 20% black, et cetera. And now let's imagine that in that village, you had 100 people who tested positive or were hospitalized for or died from COVID-19. If those 100 cases were equally distributed in that village, you'd expect to see 60 people who are white, 20 people who are black, et cetera. So the proportion of the disease in the community would reflect the proportion of people from different groups in that, in that whole village. But what if you actually saw in this hypothetical that of the people who tested positive or who hospitalized or died, there were 40 whites, 30 blacks, 20 Latinx, five uh, Hawaiian natives, and then five American Indians, right? Still 40 white individuals is a larger number than the 30 black or 20 Latinx individuals who were affected but when you compare it to the percentage of the population, we would see a much lower than expected number of white individuals infected and a higher than expected number of blacks and others. So that's the disparity. It's not necessarily the raw number, but when we see the incidence of a problem greater than we expect in the community, that signifies a disparity. That's a really helpful definition and description. And so that's what's happening with COVID? Absolutely. Uh, and so if we look at the data that are available now um, as a percentage of the population, uh, it's pretty clear that uh, 
people of color, black and brown people, disproportionately test positive, become hospitalized, and die from COVID-19 infection. So the disparity shows up all along the, the spectrum, all along. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. And uh, the raw numbers are, are disturbing. Um, and one of the things that we also have to consider is even the numbers that we have might be underreported. Uh, for example, um, the most recent data that's come out of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, current uh, up, to, uh, up to last week, showed that racial and ethnic data were available for only about 50% of the test positive uh, infections in the United States and 77% of the deaths in the United States. So in other words, not all uh, communities actually report the racial and ethnic backgrounds of people who are tested or of people who become hospitalized or die. And wow. interest interestingly, this, this race and ethnicity data is available in only 51 out of 56 states and territories. And New York is among the uh, states that does not report race and ethnicity data for cases, but we do report race and ethnicity data for many of our deaths, but not all of the deaths, only about 87% of the deaths. Wow, so we are not working with complete data. Absolutely true. Well, let me ask you, are there indications that people of color are being diagnosed and, and being treated at the same rate as white people? Actually, the data suggests the opposite, uh, that people of color are diagnosed and treated at rates lower uh, than the white population. Uh, if you look at the uh, distribution in New York State uh, for cases and deaths, um, African Americans and uh, Hispanic or Latino populations uh, have higher uh, percentages of deaths. Again, we don't have the numbers for cases, for test positive cases, but when you consider death alone, uh, certainly there are higher and disproportionately higher numbers of African Americans and Latinos who are dying from COVID-19 infection compared to their numbers in the population. So their numbers are greater among the population for being affected by this, and they're lower for being diagnosed and helped and treated. Uh, that yeah, again, that may be true, but again, we don't have we don't have adequate data uh, to say with certainty uh, what the rates of uh, diagnosis are in the population. That data is just not collected. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. This is your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Daryl Dykes. He's an orthopedic surgeon and chief diversity officer at Upstate. He's also an assistant professor of public health and preventive medicine. And we're talking about health disparities tied to the COVID-19 pandemic. So what are some of the reasons behind racial disparity in general? Well, if you uh, look at racial disparities outside of the context of COVID-19 infection, uh, this is nothing new. Uh, we have dealt with racial and ethnic disparities in healthcare across the board for many decades and have been uh, trying to eradicate this. But uh, in a single phrase, um, the, the underlying factor most responsible with health disparities is what we refer to as systemic racism, right? These are issues, factors that are baked in to virtually every aspect of American life, including, you know, healthcare, housing, education, criminal justice, uh, finance issues that ultimately result in certain populations of people having uh, less access to healthcare, uh, greater proportions of uh, disease and death, and uh, worse outcomes from treatment across the board. Does that, does the level of racism, does that vary by state or region? It, it certainly does. Uh, and again, if you uh, look at that in general, it tends to be 
most problematic in uh, poorer communities and in poorer states, uh, particularly in the southeast. Uh, but it's a problem that affects every city and every community in the country. The disparities that we see, are those also explained by income status? You mentioned that it's, you know, in poorer communities, there may be, it may be more prevalent. Um, in other words, do wealthier people of any color tend to get similar care or do poorer people of any color tend to get the same level of care? Yeah, so when we talk about healthcare disparities in general, uh, we know that you know several several groups of people, including racial and ethnic minorities, receive this uh, inferior care. But a really important and interesting uh, point to understand is that these trends persist even when we adjust the data for income, socioeconomic status, education, access to healthcare emphasizing again the systemic racism that underlies uh, this disparity. Uh, so actually, no, people who uh, are of higher socioeconomic status still experience health disparities disproportionate to their white colleagues of identical socioeconomic status. When we think about COVID-19, uh, there's an interesting twist to that and uh, and certainly people uh, from lower socioeconomic groups do have even worse uh, health disparities. And again, some of that has to do uh, with the fact that um, access to care uh, be has become more problematic uh, in the case of COVID. And then also people with uh, uh, income disparity in the case of the COVID-19 pandemic are often people who are uh, unable uh, just because of the types of jobs that they have or where they live, uh, unable to get access to care and unable to engage in just even some of the basic public health measures uh, that, that we have required like social distancing and uh, certain hygiene issues. Well, are you seeing also, I, I mean, are there more people from underserved communities that are in jobs that have been considered essential during the pandemic? And so they're out there more at, you know, putting themselves at risk more. That's that's absolutely true. So people from uh, certain racial and ethnic minority groups, in, including uh, black and Latino and native uh, people are uh, disproportionately employed in jobs that we consider essential work settings. And some of these include uh, healthcare facilities, farms, uh, factories, grocery stores, public transportation. These people work in these environments and they are often exposed at a higher rate to the virus uh, due to several factors. And some of those factors include, you know, close contact with the public, uh, close working quarters where they're not able to separate from other workers, uh, many of these places have poor ventilation. Um, they're not able to work from home. As we all know, you know, for the over the past year, uh, many of us have become very accustomed to working from home. Uh, people in these jobs uh, can't uh, work from home because of the specific job requirements. And then many people in these jobs often have uh, a need to go to work because they don't have paid sick days and other uh, benefits of employment that other other individuals have. What about uh, multi-generational households? How does, what impact does that have on the pandemic? So in, in many cultures, um, living in multi-generational households where, you know, there'll be grandparents and parents and grandchildren, cousins uh, living together, uh, certainly uh, we've seen higher risk of COVID-19 infection. And that has to do with just the simple fact that these are close quarters. Uh, people are not able to distance within those types of households. They often have members of that family uh, community who are working in these essential jobs that we talked about and uh, coming home and sometimes uh, without any symptoms, uh, spreading virus in their own household. Uh, some of these households are, are small quarters where folks have to share you know, one or uh, two bathrooms uh, and simply can't uh, can't socially distance uh, in that environment. 
Well, let me ask you, when we talk about racial disparity, is there any explanation for genetics? I mean, does genetics play a role in the disparity? So that, that's a great and, and interesting question. So when we talk about disparities in general, uh, no, there is no genetic basis to explain the disparity. Again, these are social factors largely related to systemic issues that result in the disparities. In fact, if you look at human beings across the board, uh, there's very little, if any, uh, genetic basis for what we now call race. Uh, so you are actually uh, more likely or as likely to share genetic similarities with someone of a different race than you are with other members of your own race. But, what, but what's also important to understand is this uh, new or relatively new uh, interest in what's called epigenetics. So epi, epigenetics are uh, the study of changes in how our genes are expressed without changes to the underlying DNA, right? So we have DNA as our master code. Uh, that doesn't necessarily change in uh, health disparities, but it's becoming very clear that certain environmental factors like uh, stress, uh, smoking, um, uh, other exposures in the environment can alter how our genes are actually expressed. And this may be the basis for some of the uh, increased rates of, for instance, cardiovascular disease, uh, heart disease, uh, preterm labor, those things that are clear disparities in black and brown communities. So these are, if I understand correctly, these are, are chronic kind of situations that have an impact perhaps on, on the genes. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Upstate's Health Link on Air will be back shortly with more from Dr. Daryl Dykes. We're back with Dr. Daryl Dykes. He's an orthopedic surgeon at Upstate, where he also serves as Chief Diversity Officer. I'm Amber Smith, host of Upstate's HealthLink on Air, and I'm talking with Dr. Dykes about health disparities with regard to the COVID-19 pandemic. So there are health inequalities that existed pre-pandemic, and you talked about them a little bit, but for instance, um, access to primary care and other medical services for people who are Black, Indigenous, or other people of color. That's been a challenge in the past. How has the pandemic affected that? Uh, sure. So the access to, to care issue, as you mentioned, has, has been problematic. Uh, we have known for a long time uh, that certain communities have uh, disparate uh, and, and basically unequal uh, access to healthcare providers and facilities. Uh, it's these very facilities during the COVID uh, pandemic that have also been affected by the pandemic itself. So uh, difficulties with staffing uh, many of these facilities because their own staff have been out with COVID infection. Uh, there have been disproportionate distributions of protective equipment. We all hear about this PPE. And uh, it's, it, there's no question that some of the facilities that are charged and, and most responsible for caring for these communities have also suffered the greatest from some of the lack of resources, uh, funding issues, and just the logistics of caring for the people who are most affected here. Well, let's talk about underlying health conditions. Uh, does diabetes and substance abuse or obesity, does that have an impact on how COVID-19 affects somebody who has one or more of these underlying health conditions? Sure, uh, COVID-19 infection is a respiratory virus. So this is a virus that primarily affects the lungs. Uh, we've learned over this pandemic that it has uh, much broader uh, health implications uh, affecting other organ systems. Uh, the heart and the brain and, and other, other systems in the body. 
but when you think about some of these chronic diseases that you mentioned, uh, for example, uh, African Americans are significantly more likely to die from stroke or to suffer from asthma or to have heart disease or to have diabetes. And of course, these underlying conditions are exactly the conditions that make them more vulnerable to the virus and then also to have worse outcomes when they do become sick with the virus and uh, we're unable to treat them as effectively. Is the disparity in COVID-19 outcomes, is that unique to America or have we seen similar disparities in other countries? No, it's certainly not unique to America. Um, there are minority groups all over the world uh, who are disproportionately affected by COVID-19. Uh, several studies have come out of uh, the United Kingdom, for instance, Norway, uh, the Middle East, uh, that show similar uh, disparities in COVID-19 infection, hospitalization, and death. But the underlying uh, consistency, the underlying factor here is that most of these examples are related to pre-existing inequalities for these people who are disproportionately affected. And the disparities in other countries are tied to race and or socioeconomic status? Exactly, yes. What about looking back in history? Were there disparities noticed or recorded during the 1918 flu pandemic? Oh, absolutely. So uh, this is the biggest, the COVID-19 uh, current uh, pandemic is the uh, biggest pandemic uh, to affect the world since the 1918 flu pandemic. And we see a number of disturbing parallels uh, between then and now, 100 years later. And uh, during the 1918 flu pandemic, Black Americans similarly suffered disproportionately uh, with, with disease uh, and death. Um, much of this, again, was based on these baked-in systemic racist factors uh, where providers at the time uh, either did not believe that uh, Blacks were susceptible to the flu pandemic uh, or resources were disproportionately allocated to uh, white people who had, who had the flu. Um, an interesting uh, anecdote is uh, if you... Uh, look back to some of the literature that was published around the 1918 flu pandemic, there were health professionals on record who actually believed that African-Americans were not susceptible to the flu because they characteristically had big noses. And uh, medical professionals uh, postulated that, they're, uh, that they were resistant to the microorganisms that caused the flu because they have big noses. Wow. So, so again, this is this is nothing new. And uh, what we saw in 1918 was that the black communities were forced to battle this pandemic um, using you know, limited resources and inadequate access to care, much like they're facing today. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Upstate's Chief Diversity Officer, Dr. Daryl Dykes. We're talking about health disparities tied to the COVID-19 pandemic. So let's talk about what is being done and what could be done to counteract these disparities. How do we go about reducing health disparities overall, and especially now during a pandemic? When we understand the cause of health disparities, it becomes very easy to understand what we have to do to eliminate health disparities. Health disparities are fundamentally based on unjust, unfair access to resources. And uh, it, it relates to these, what we call socioeconomic or social determinants of health more than anything else. And so where we have uh, poor infrastructure, poor education, where you have housing issues, where you have transportation issues, food insecurity. Predictably, these things are going to result in health disparities. We have to so, address the underlying, the underlying problems in order to achieve health justice or health equity. So those underlying problems that you listed, those are the social determinants of health. 
Exactly. It sounds like a lot of them don't have anything to do with health, really, based on where you live and your environment, but those things are all tied together. So we know very clearly um, from, a, from a number of sources over a long time that certainly healthcare and, and what we do as healthcare providers makes a difference in quality of life and health and life expectancy. But in many cases, that's really the small part of the picture. Uh, maybe, you know, 10, 20, 30 percent of the of the picture. The other 70 or 80 percent of the picture directly relates to these issues outside of the healthcare system. So not what I do or my colleagues do as healthcare providers, but it goes back to these social determinants of health, where people live, how they eat, how they communicate, uh, how they transport, what their education is that determines most of the uh, quality of life and uh, healthcare disparities that we see. Well, now, right now during the pandemic, is COVID-19 testing, is that available to underserved populations or that, do they have access, adequate access to COVID-19 testing? Early uh, during the outbreak in the United States, the so last spring, uh, testing was very limited. And uh, when we heard about testing or talked about testing, it had mostly to do with, you know, government officials, certain celebrities were, were being tested, and then a few uh, healthcare workers, uh, whether they were symptomatic or asymptomatic. And it was around this time last year, so in March of 2020, uh, when the federal government finally passed legislation uh, to allow free COVID-19 testing uh, to all individuals. And it was through that that large-scale uh, testing first became available in the United States. Uh, but still, there were significant disparities and have been, even to this day, significant disparities in the availability of testing in certain communities, including, not surprisingly, poor communities, black and brown communities. One of the things that um, we you know, are very proud of here at Upstate uh, is some of the uh, cutting edge uh, research and leadership that, that has uh, been done. Um, as you know, uh, Dr. Frank Middleton uh, here at Upstate has led efforts to produce a uh, very uh, effective and simple COVID uh, testing uh, system based on saliva testing uh, that has really become the gold standard for testing of its kind. And so through uh, actions on the part of the government and public health officials and then innovation like we're doing here at Upstate, testing has become much more available and much more equitably distributed. Well, uh, what about the vaccine? Now that the vaccine is rolling out and becoming more available, What's being done to make sure that underserved communities receive what they need? There are two main issues to think about when we talk about the vaccine. Uh, one is access to the vaccine. And you know, as we've all heard recently, uh, we have a critical vaccine shortage. So even if everyone in the community who should be vaccinated and wants to be vaccinated uh, were to try to get the vaccine. We simply don't have adequate supplies of the vaccine right now. Now, the uh, government, uh, particularly in this new administration, uh, is working very hard to increase production of the vaccine. We've seen uh, recent examples of new vaccines beyond the, the uh, Pfizer and Moderna vaccine that have been available up to this point uh, that are that are coming to market. And uh, certainly that will, um, you know, reduce this lag and uh, get vaccine out and into people's arms uh, more quickly than we have in the past. What about vaccine hesitancy among people of color? Are you seeing that as an issue? So absolutely, and that, that's really the, the second point uh, that I was going to bring up is uh, the fact that in certain communities, including uh, black and brown communities, there's significant vaccine hesitancy. And what that means is, quite frankly, that people are afraid of the vaccine. 
Uh, they're afraid of the vaccine uh, because uh, they think there's significant risk to getting the vaccine. Some of that fear is based on uh, general health disparities and a mistrust for the medical system uh, that, that has existed for many, many years. Uh, when you try to understand that mistrust, uh, there are, you know, reasons to understand it just, again, based on uh, the disparities that we see. Black and brown communities know and recognize that their members uh, are, are sicker and die younger and uh, don't recover as well from, from certain health conditions. Uh, but then there are also examples and, and very uh, tragic examples over our history in the United States uh, where uh, black people uh, have been used, quite frankly, as guinea pigs in scientific experimentation. Uh, they have had uh, procedures performed on them, including sterilization procedures without consent. And so there's, there is a genuine and understandable mistrust for the medical system in the United States and black and brown communities. How important is it to have healthcare providers who are people of color taking care of or, or giving vaccination shots to people of color? Yeah, so the irony here and the tragedy here is this vaccine hesitancy is most problematic in the very population who needs most to be vaccinated and who needs most to uh, be protected from this from this virus. And so you're absolutely right. The only way to combat that hesitancy and to achieve equity when we're talking about the COVID-19 infection is to dispel some of the uh, myths about this virus, still understanding you know, the history, um, and to educate people about the safety and efficacy of this vaccine. That education will have to come from trusted sources, and that will include uh, healthcare providers and scientists um, who are, you know, black and brown. Some who aren't. I mean, uh, there are healthcare leaders uh, over the whole course of this pandemic who uh, have been trusted resources for reliable information. Uh, but then it's also uh, training the trainer, so to speak, right? So as healthcare providers. We have to reach out to leaders in the community, whether that's, you know, faith based uh, community leaders, uh, community organizations, other trusted individuals who can uh, learn the facts. Uh, know the issues and then be able to effectively communicate that to the populations that they serve. Well, I appreciate all of this information. Thank you to Chief Diversity Officer, Dr. Daryl Dykes. He's an orthopedic surgeon at Upstate and also an assistant professor of diversity and inclusion and of public health and preventive medicine. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, how were the 19th century British like modern day Americans? State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. She was studying alternative health practices among the 19th century British when the pandemic began in spring 2020. And soon she noticed some similarities with what was happening in present day America. Today I'm speaking with Heiju Kim. She's a doctoral candidate in English and a teaching associate at Syracuse University. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Heiju. Hi, Amber. Now, your work for your doctorate focuses on medical liberty and alternative health practices in 19th century Britain. What were some of the alternative health practices of that time? A lot of them are still around, actually. Homeopathy, mesmerism, medical botany or medical herbalism, and vegetarianism was... I'm can, sorry, I ask you to, can I ask you to explain <laughs> what those are? You use some terms that I'm not familiar with. Um, homeopathy was a, a practice that was invented by Hahnemann, 
19th century and um i think um still a lot of um even the you know medication medicine that's sold um via pharmacies um still have homeopathic label on them and mesmerism um it's about the sort of um cosmic forces um electric forces um between people and um it's oh. less of a health practice right now but sort of um transformed into occult i would say and uh, medical botany or medical herbalism, it's using herbs and um, plants um, to cure um, symptoms or diseases. Um, and, um, you know, herbal tea can technically be uh, categorized in, um, in that sense. Um, and um, vegetarianism, mm -hmm. which was, it's, it's a lifestyle, but also it was considered as a health practice um, in 19th century uh, because uh, a lot of people um, were practicing vegetarianism, not only for moral reasons, but also for health reasons as well. So was vegetarianism back then the same as the vegetarian we may be more familiar with today? I mean, just basically not eating mm -hmm. meat, eating a lot of fruits and vegetables? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, the definition itself um, is the same, but um, the word vegetarian was actually coined in the 1840s, um, though the practice itself has been there you know, forever from the ancient times. Um, but 19th century was the period when uh, vegetarianism became this conscious movement um, and was popularized in the Anglo-American world in Britain and in the and United States as well. Yeah. Was that for health reasons or, or were they opposed mm -hmm. to eating animals? It was both. Um, part, of it part of it was moral concerns about animal cruelty and part of it was about health and bodily purity. And um, there was an overlap um, because um, concerns about bodily purity was, you know, supposed in the 19th century sense, um, it was about that moral self-discipline to keep your body pure by doing a vegetarian diet and also, um, you know, uh, resisting the kind of um, animal urges. And a lot of people actually thought that vegetarian diet can um, reduce your animalistic impulses, so um, reduce sexual um, appetite as well. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I think your paper mentions hydropathy or hydropathy. Mm -hmm. um, what is that? Yeah. Hydropathy uh, was a practice that was established in Germany in the 1830s. And the central practice, um, central principle was uh, that cold water has a tendency to bring impurities out of the system. So they used various baths and wet sheets to saturate the body in water. And um, it's not around anymore because we now know that you know, just hanging in the water would not make you, um, you know, healthy, not necessarily. Um, but um, for people in the 19th century, it helped them to opt out of and stay away from harmful practices and treatments such as bleeding or um, taking calomel, which was mercury compound. Yeah, it was a, it was a safer method. Yeah. Interesting. Well, uh, how did this anti-vaccination movement begin? Were people mm -hmm. opposed to vaccination because it was new? Mm. Well, um, when we say anti-vaccination movement in 19th century, it is again smallpox vaccination, which was introduced by Edward Jenner in late 18th century. And when Jenner now, let me ask you, was mm -hmm. was that the first vaccine? Yes, that was the first vaccine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it was something new. So maybe there was reason for people to be skeptical. Absolutely. Um, it was um, sort of viewed as um, injecting animal filth into your body. So that was really counterintuitive that that can make you healthier and that can protect you from diseases. Mm -hmm. So definitely that was part of it. Um, but also people, um, you know, anti-vaccination movement became a movement when there were legislations that forced enforced people to have mandatory vaccination. So it was, you know, resistance against that um, compulsion as well by the state. Mm -hmm. Well, was there a lot of fear of smallpox during that time, though? Yeah, I mean, um, um, it was one of the deadliest infectious diseases. Mm -hmm. um, but in a lot of anti-vax pamphlets in the period, um, the unnaturalness of vaccination was sort of under, um, deemed as more dangerous than um, smallpox, which, you know, is technically natural, right? Um, so it was sort of understood as this... Um, the body's natural impulse to expel the impurities. Um, 
Yeah. Oh, I see. Well, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Heiju Kim. She's a doctoral candidate in English at Syracuse University who has done extensive research into 19th century Britain, including looking into some public health practices during that time. So what were things like in Britain during the pandemic of 1918? Mm -hmm. Were there people who refused to wear masks at that time? Um, so... I mean, uh, almost a quarter million Britons died of Spanish flu, so it was definitely a devastating pandemic. Um, but at the same time, because people's attention were all drawn to the World War One uh, and its aftermath, uh, there were less nationally coordinated response to contain the pandemic and the virus. Um, so therefore, there were le less resistance to it. And then because of the war, there was this patriotic spirit that was around, um, which prevented people to, you know, actively resist public health measures if, you know, they if there was any. Well, what do you what did you think when you watched like modern day opposition to mask wearing mm -hmm. here in America and mm -hmm. all of the things that you were studying? Were you mm -hmm. fascinated by how similar they were? Oh, yes. Um, yeah, it just um, struck me as um, very similar um, in many ways. And um, one of the things that really um, got me was that, you know, of course, there were, you know, anti-vax movement in 19th century Britain and the kind of um, anti-vax mask protests that we saw. Um, they were both about, you know, the tension between the individual liberty and public health, right? Um, and in both cases, the proponents of the of individual liberty tied the value of liberty to the individual subject's national identity. So it was back then um, British and English liberty. And um, now uh, we saw a lot of, um, you know, uh, talk about American freedom, right? So in a way, the rhetoric suggested that it was more patriotic and um, actually better for the national community to pursue individual liberty than to follow compulsory public health measures. Um, so in yeah. 19th century Britain, which won out, individual liberty or public health? That's a really good question. Um, um, I think one way to answer it um, is, um, yeah, just if you look at the anti-vaccination movement, I would say individual liberty, at least partly won out because um, uh, in the 1898 Vaccination Act, um, the a conscientious objection clause was inserted. Um, so it allowed the parents to exempt their children from vaccination based on their conscience. And the uh, 1907 Vaccination Act loosened the sort of qualifications around that um, objection. Um, you know, whether that objection is authentic. Uh, so, um, yeah, basically in early 20th century, you can very easily out of smallpox vaccination um, if you wanted to um, for your children. So, um, yeah, individual liberty. How much overlap did you find between the people who were against wearing masks and the people who were anti-vaxxers back then? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, if we are talking about the 19th century, it's a little hard to tell because, um, mask wearing was not a mandate um, in 19th century in um, um, sort of for the lay public. It was more in the surgical um, situations. Um, but um, what is really interesting, uh, I think, is um, smallpox um, anti-vaxxers um, were actually pro-quarantine. Um, yeah, that's surprising. Mm -hmm. But um, they uh, were pro-quarantine because they thought it was less intrusive than um, vaccination itself. Um, it was at least not piercing the, the skin, um, uh, the puncturing the skin. So there were that sort of negotiations that was going on, definitely. Did you get any feel for the type of people that were anti-vaxxers in 19th mm -hmm. century Britain? Were they men or women, working class, upper class? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What did you find out about them? Um, yeah, um, the anti-vaccination movement in the 19th century Britain was definitely a white working class movement, um, um, I would say mostly. And um, it was a period when the working class people were becoming more and more politically active and they sort of it was there uh, in their agenda and they framed um, smallpox vaccination as this um, state violence, you know, targeting the working class people by repeated fining and jailing. And 
one of the things that I really wanted to show is that they have the ability to self-govern, which means that the state you know, cannot tell them what to do with their bodies. And then they have the capacity and moral um, life to make that decision, unlike paupers or colonial subjects overseas. Um, so that was the kind of um, political movement um, taken up by um, the working class um, aspiring um, citizens, um, the working class, yeah. Well, after studying medical liberty in 19th century Britain, do you have any suggestions for how to convince people to follow public health policies mm -hmm. or recommendations that could be applied to the coronavirus pandemic today? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, that's a hard question. <laughs> and uh, I might not have a very practical and direct answer to that. But I do think it's very important to um, not just not to just condemn someone who does not follow public health measures as um, stupid or anti-scientific. I think um, it is um, actually very um, crucial to understand that um, people are concerned with um, to what extent states should intervene with individual bodily matters, you know, about individual freedom in relation to this large scale public health um, state intervention. And these are the ideas um, that are not far off from the foundational principles of American society, right? Um, it's kind of shared value as well. Um, so like that um, conversation definitely needs to be taken seriously. But at the same time, that said, um, I think in the long run, I think it is um, also very important for us to um, sort of change that mindset that health is an individual property um, that health. I mean, pandemic showed us that, right? <laughs> Our bodies are very porous and um, uh, we are part of uh, a larger social body. Um, it's not just about um, self. Um, so to understand health as this um, sort of um, collective uh, um, value um, as opposed to individual property, I think um, that conversation uh, needs to happen more and more, yeah. Well, let me ask you, how did you choose this topic for your dissertation in the first place? What got you interested in this? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I think actually my experience as an international student inspired me to pursue this topic because um, I grew up in Korea. Um, and when I first moved to the United States to pursue my PhD degree, there were a lot of cultural practices that stood out to me as very odd <laughs> and made me wonder what's up there. And um, my dissertation is sort of my attempt to answer um, the the kind of um, the thing I thought that was very strange um, um, here. <laughs> and um, one example is that um, I um, went to see an acupuncturist in Syracuse, and um, that was my first time to um, get um, acupuncture, and um, it was helpful. So. I went back home um, in Seoul during the summer and sought an acupuncturist there too. And the experience was completely different. Um, the technique was similar, the effect was similar, but um, the atmosphere uh, and um, how people perceived um, that um, practice was very different. Here, it was all about that, um, you know, you were, re you know, sort of, um, um, feeling your body, you know, having this individual space where you, um, have this better relationship with your body because body knows better. Uh, we have this meditational music that's um, in the background. Um, but um, in Korea, there were like 10 beds um, in the same room. Um, and <laughs> the doctor <laughs> of Korean medicine just, was just like swishing between these beds to apply needles. Um, and um, yeah, I was like, what? Yeah, what is going on here? Um, it's the same technique and people are, you know, getting something very different out of um, the same medical practice. And um, I had to get to the bottom of it. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, did the current pandemic influence the way you're writing your dissertation? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, definitely. Um, I was, um, I caught myself um, using the words um, that were sort of that became this buzzword in the media, <laughs> like um, community spread and then these kind of more um, technical and scientific terms that uh, were, you know, not really part of my lingo of you know, my literary studies uh, definitely um, showed up more and more um, my writing process. Um, yeah, it was, um, I mean, ironically inspiring. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing this with us. Thank you to Heiju Kim. She's a doctoral candidate in English at Syracuse University. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.
And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Harmony Button has had her work published in Best American Notable Essays of 2015. She gifted us with a gorgeous short poem celebrating the birth of a new family. Here is Rich. King-size sheets on a queen-size bed. Corn silk scalp and milky head. Late night nightlight salt lamp glow. Daytime naps and days of slow walks and long talks and rich snacks in bed. Honey crisp apples and almond appled crumbs of toast we offer the dog as we count and log the minutes of sleep and ounces of milk. This is how we show our love from before and our love's new debut. Clean sheets, warm sleep, a precious few moments of skin on skin with not baby, him. My new old body back to thin and fits against his torso for so long as we can until our mouths that clutch unlatch from one and open to another as if the world were made of milk and we three were, all of us, afloat and drowning in it. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, heart disease in women. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.